Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today I have Trina Tadaros with me, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina. Hi, thanks, Ben. Glad to have you. And I think we've covered a lot over the last few weeks, but it's time for a little bit of a look ahead in terms of where the pandemic is going. So today, let's spend a little bit of time looking at some of those numbers. We may even go outside the U.S. to do so. And let's look at serology, what's happening with that, um, and just try to bring all of these numbers into context for our listeners. But let's start with outside the U.S. And I think you're going to take us to Brazil today and talk to us a bit about what they're seeing in terms of some of the pandemic numbers. Yeah, yeah. So it's actually a really interesting situation in Manaus, Brazil in particular. This is a city that had a tremendous and intense outbreak this year huge number of people were hospitalized, huge number of people died. There were reports that the hospitals were unable to sort of keep up. There was trouble burying the dead. So so a you know a community that was really hard hit. And researchers went in and, and did some blood work to, to try to figure out what percentage of the population had antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And they just published not that long ago the results of that study. And what they found was that in June, just one month following the epidemic peak, 44% of the population was seropositive for SARS-CoV-2, which equates to, the researchers said, a cumulative incidence of 52%, if you correct for the false negative rate of the antibody test they were using. And then they, the seroprevalence fell in July and August, as the antibodies waned, the researchers say. And so they estimate a final epidemic size of 66%. And 66% is close to what researchers think herd immunity could be for a population. Seemingly, Manaus might have hit that point in August. So as we look ahead to the U.S. and we look ahead to vaccination campaigns and the continued infections of people, you know, we're looking to a time when you know, about two-thirds of the population has antibodies or some kind of innate immunity to, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and then we can kind of start to go back to normal life. So what's happened recently in Manaus is actually kind of a warning or, or something to watch, which is even though... The researchers say that they had a final epidemic size of 66%. They are experiencing a new wave of cases. And Manaus is actually enforcing new restrictions to try to get a hold of that. So we're, here we are at the end of September. Local authorities put a 30-day ban on parties and other gatherings. They're putting new restrictions on restaurants and shopping. And, and they're, we're all watching to see what, what does this mean? And what does it mean for the rest of us as we all sort of point ourselves to a time when a good number of us have immunity to the virus? Yeah, really an excellent point of not just what does herd immunity mean, but what will that really do in terms of protection for the population? So what, what a great case study to start trying to at least piece some of that out. I want to turn our attention back to the United States, though. And this is something that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, which is when you get into fall, the schools are back, the weather's changing, people may be spending more time indoors. So what are we seeing in terms of numbers? And I think you've been looking at the Midwest where you're based. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm outside of Chicago. So I have I have sort of have personal interest in what's going on in the Midwest in particular. But anyway, like you said, Ben, we are watching for a, a fall surge. And if you look back at the 1918 influenza pandemic, October was the most intense month in terms of deaths. We don't necessarily expect that for this one. This is not a influenza and this is not, the past is not a predictor exactly of the future. So October, you know, we, we don't know, but we do see signs after a lot of quiet across the country of a fall surge, at least in the Midwest or in the center of the country. We see weekly cases going up a little bit. And in some states, we do see a clear rise in cases. In particular, if you look at Minnesota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Utah, Utah not being in the Midwest, of course, in Wisconsin, you see positives coming back in greater numbers, and then also hospitalizations, which is kind of a key measure if you really want to sort of tease out whether you're seeing just a sort of an artifact of more testing or actually more cases, more infections. We are seeing hospitalizations going up in some of these states, especially if you look at, say, Wisconsin. So this is this is a troubling start to the fall. And I think that the what happens next will determine what happens next. So are we going to have sort of a doubling down of mitigation measures like masking and and maybe restricting bars and restaurant capacities in some of these states? Are people going to go back to more stringent social distancing, maybe not having those backyard barbecues or those dinner parties indoors? Or or are we going to have a kind of a patchwork and some states will be able to get a hold of their their outbreaks and some won't? We, we don't know. But that's that's what we're seeing in the in the Midwest. And we'll be watching this carefully because the fall is sort of when we're expecting to see this take off in other parts of the country too, as people move indoors because the weather is getting colder, particularly in the, the northern states where that will happen. So the other topic we wanted to cover today was serology. And, you know, this is really the question around when and how does the population have antibodies and how we measure that. So could you tell us about what the latest data is around serology testing in the U.S. and what we're seeing? Yeah, so this is kind of a corollary to the whole Brazil study, but in the U.S. So one of the things that researchers have been looking at is what percentage of the population of the United States has antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and has ostensibly immunity to the virus. And that kind of lets us know how far along are we toward herd immunity, which is when, like I said, you know, we can think about life going back to normal, that we can think about putting this pandemic in the rearview mirror in some respects. And so the numbers that have come out in different kinds of ways, so different methodologies for determining this, all are settling around 10% or so of Americans having antibodies to the SARS-CoV-2 virus so far. One recent study looked at blood samples from dialysis patients and found the same thing. So about 10% of the U.S., once they extrapolated to the overall general population, that about 10% of the U.S. population has antibodies, which means if we're looking at 60 to 70% as herd immunity, we're pretty far from that. And this is why public health experts are saying we're going to be masking, social distancing, having our lives somewhat shaped by the pandemic into a good part of next year, because we're just really not very far along. This particular study, this one came out in The Lancet, and I think one interesting piece of it that 
came out was that if you look at non-Hispanic Black Americans and Hispanic and Black Americans, the percentages were much higher. And that tracks very nicely with what we've been hearing all along, which is that Black Americans and Hispanic Latinx Americans have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. So the data out of this Lancet art uh, study, you know, mirrors or reinforces that. This Lancet study has some caveats. You know, dialysis patients are not an exact mirror for the U.S. population. So it might be that these data overestimate the prevalence of antibodies because patients on dialysis are disproportionately from racial and ethnic minorities, and they tend to take public or non-public shared transportation more often than the general population. So they might be exposed more to the virus than the general U.S. population. And also dialysis is basically 10 to 12 hours of care delivered in indoor facilities. And again, that's a higher risk kind of situation than, than you know, sitting in your home, working out of your house all day. But the researchers also point out that their data might underestimate seroprevalence because patients receiving dialysis are less likely to be employed. They're more likely to be restricted in their mobility and social activities. They might be exposed less. So, you know, pulled together, we can say, well, this study doesn't tell us solidly where we are as Americans in terms of immunity. But if you add this to other studies that have looked at the same question from different angles, they're all settling around this 10% number, which means, like I said, we have uh, quite a ways to go. And a vaccine, as much as we'd like that to be kind of the end of the pandemic, we believe that we know that that's not going to be a sudden, you know, a sudden change in everyone's life, and that that it'll take quite a bit of time to build up that immunity in the United States population. Well, Trina, for our final topic today, let's talk about demographics and certainly with the return to school, there's been a lot of questions around, do young people returning to school, will that increase the prevalence and and will that actually transfer to older an older population, which is a great question, especially in college towns. There's been some recent numbers from the summer talking about that. Could you Could you talk about that with us? Yeah, yeah. So the CDC recently put out a report looking at age trends in emergency room visits related to COVID-19, COVID-19 tests, positive tests, confirmed cases, and total SARS-CoV-2 tests. So they, they looked at all this and they looked at age, the median age for these different metrics. And what they found is that younger adults contributed to community transmission of COVID-19 to older adults. And this is what we've been hearing. So it is not that young folks who are getting infected and perhaps experiencing mild or no symptoms at all, for the most part, are limiting that transmission to each other. They're actually transmitting it to to older people, their parents, you know, the, the older people that they work with, and on and on out into older and older populations. And that's what the CDC data show very clearly. They found that the increase in SARS-CoV-2 infection among younger adults preceded an increase among older adults by 4 to 15 days or as the researchers say, one to three incubation periods. So in a way, you can look at an increase in younger people and predict that in four to 15 days, you're going to have it transfer over to older people and on and on 
up into older age groups who are more likely to be hospitalized, more likely to die of the infection and and COVID-19. So this is a big piece of understanding how to anticipate what happens next. You can watch for this spread among young people and then anticipate it's going to go on, but it also gives us kind of a a strategy to try to protect older populations, to protect them, focus on the young. And so in this report, the CDC says, look, if we look at the reasons behind the spread among young people, part of it is younger adults might be less likely to follow community mitigation strategies like social distancing and avoiding group gatherings. So messaging targeting that, targeting young adults might make an impact and then protect the older adults that are more likely to get sick. Also, occupations and and sort of jobs that younger workers tend to have often are frontline occupations like working in stores, working in public transit, working in childcare, working in social services, working in restaurants and bars, entertainment, these kinds of jobs. These are more like jobs where you're more likely to be exposed, less likely to have good protection. And so that also might be a place where focus might end up protecting the older populations as well. And then also just understanding and and targeting public health campaigns at younger adults to make them realize that they can be asymptomatic and still be infectious and transmit the virus is also a a part of it. So understanding how the virus is sort of transmitted and what happens after certain populations get infected is a way to target public health strategies and sort of protect the whole. And so I think this is sort of an interesting report that, that kind of points that out and, and shows that. I think that's a you know a very interesting look at it. And I love what you said about anticipating what happens next. And I think for health leaders who are listening to this, it really does provide a pathway to start thinking about looking at these demographic numbers and maybe anticipating where the hot spots will pop up next and really getting ready for those. So good information there. Thank you as well for kind of taking us around the globe, if you will, of what's happening in Brazil all the way to the Midwest in terms of the numbers and what we may expect um, over the next few months. And then, of course, to this demographic question of where are people getting it and what's the role of young people. So again, Trina, thanks for joining us and providing all that information. Sure, my pleasure. Well, if you want more information about what we're talking about, plus other issues like health policy issues, what's happening with vaccine development, all that can be found on our website at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And we'll see you next time on Next in Health. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.